الحمد لله وكفى وسلام على عباده الذين اصطفى أما بعد فأعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ولله المشرق والمغرب فأينما تولوا فثم وجه الله إن الله واسع عليم صدق الله العظيم سبحان ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد وعلى آل سيدنا محمد وبارك وسلم Last week we did al-mujib right the answer of the answer so this week is al-wasi' al-wasi' So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions this name a few times in the Qur'an. One in the verse that I recited, وَلِلَّهِ الْمَشْرِقُ وَالْمَغْرِبِ That to Allah belongs the east and the west. فَأَيْنَ مَا تُوَلُّوا That whichever direction you turn, فَثَمَّ وَجْهُ اللَّهِ You will find the countenance of Allah. إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَاسِعٌ عَلِيمٌ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is vast and all knowledgeable, all knowing. So al-wasi' means the vast, the expansive. I guess technically you could say broad or wide, right? But vast is better because it wide denotes something of a, a body, something tangible. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is vast. Now how is He vast? He highlights this in a few ways in the Qur'an. In one, from one angle, He's vast in His knowledge. So He says, وَسِعَ رَبِّي كُلَّ شَيْءٍ عِلْمًا أَفَلَا تَتَذَكَّرُونَ that my Rabb is, my Lord, He is vast in everything regarding the knowledge of it, right? Will you not be mindful? Will you not be mindful? And another aspect is in His mercy. So in another verse of Qur'an, Allah Ta'ala says, وَرَحْمَتِي وَسِعَتْ كُلَّ شَيْءٍ That my, my mercy is uh, vast over everything. Spreads far and wide over everything. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being wasi' means in every aspect. It kind of combines, gives an emphatic note to so many different attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So He is the most vast in His knowledge, in His wisdom, in His justice, uh, in His mercy, in His forgiveness. And everything and anything, He is the most vast. The ulama write that He is... This, his, him being wasi' is endlessness in his tolerance. That in his tolerance of whatever takes place in his hilm, he is, there's endlessness in it. There is no limit to it. So as we mentioned that this, this attribute is linked to knowledge. So Imam Ghazali, rahimullah, he mentions that it is linked to knowledge when it extends to and comprehends a multitude of objects. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has knowledge of everything. A multitude of objects, absolutely in everything. When we discussed alim, then we mentioned that Allah Ta'ala, one of the differences between Allah's knowledge and our knowledge is that our knowledge is based on observation, right? That first there is creation and existence, then our knowledge comes second after that. Whereas Allah Ta'ala's knowledge comes first and then the existence and creation of everything else comes. So... Allah, the, uh, the fact that Allah Ta'ala has created so many different things shows how vast His knowledge is, shows how vast He is in everything that He does. Because He created so many different things. Right? I mean, we can't even count, right? We have no idea how, much crea- how many different species and whatnot that there is. 
Secondly, it is linked to, uh, if it's linked to uh, benefit and favors, then it is, he says, Imam Uzay says, it is charity, linked to charity and widespread blessings, extending as far as possible to everything it touches. So one, it is linked to knowledge, and the other, it is linked to charity. Meaning that Allah Ta'ala has widespread blessings on everything that it touches. Right? Everything that Allah Ta'ala's blessings touch, that they encompass, it, it spreads His charity, so to speak, spreads to all of those things. That there's no bound, there's, it knows no bounds. So it is mentioned, Imam Ghazali, he says that when considering Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala's knowledge, that Allah Ta'ala's knowledge to show us how vast it is, is he says it is a sea that, show, that knows no shore. So a sea that has no shore, an endless sea. And a verse of Qur'an from Surah Kahf, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قُلْ لَوْ كَانَ الْبَحْرُ مِدَادًا لِكَلِمَاتِ رَبِّي That say, if the oceans were to be ink for the words of my Lord, if all the oceans were to be turned into ink, so that it could enumerate the words of my Rabb, لَنَفِدَ الْبَحْرُ قَبْلَ أَن تَنْفَدَ كَلِمَاتُ Then the... The, uh, then the oceans would have dried. The oceans, or that ink, would have dried. The oceans would have dried before the words of my Lord were exhausted. So if you take the ocean and turn it into ink, so that it can write the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it would not be able to do so. The oceans would dry up before the words of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ended. Not only one ocean, but if you brought another ocean that, to, uh, uh, to its like, even that would dry. Even that would become exhausted. It would dry up. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's knowledge and His vastness, vastness would continue going forward. Now Imam Ghazali, he says that that is regarding Allah ta'ala's knowledge. Now, he says that if we consider the blessings and the beneficence of, uh, uh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then there is no end to the things that He can do. So if we consider Allah ta'ala's blessings over things, there's no end to it. To what He can do and how He can bless a thing and how he can continue showering his blessings or increasing his blessings. And then the ulama mentioned that one of the signs uh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, of his vastness, is in his creation. That no creation in humanity, right, nothing has completely identical uh, uh, what faces, voices, fingers, personalities, he mentions these things. Now we have, you might have an identical twin, right? You might have an identical twin. But you guys know what an identical twin is actually? What's, how do you consider someone to be an identical twin? It's not actually through their features. So you can actually look different from your twin, but still be considered scientifically identical. It has to do with like, I don't know, their... their it's... It's, it has to do with, it has to do not with outward appearance, but something inward. I don't know, like DNA I'm sure is not the right word, but so yeah, right? Something in the genes. Not even like the whole, like something specific, right? So people can actually outward, outwardly, two twins can look exactly the same, but scientifically not be considered identical, right? Or if we look at fingerprints, no two, even our fingerprints are not the same from the other fingerprint, right? So this shows the vastness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And even if you do get identical twins, then their personalities are usually different. Right? The personalities usually aren't exactly the same, right? Uh, so it's, so his, his vastness, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's vastness is reflected among us. 
Now, the ulama mentioned that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, how should we view His vastness? As we mentioned in the beginning, that His vastness, His being wasi' is, covers everything. So any attribute Allah ta'ala has, know that it is, like whatever we have an idea of what it might be, it is more vast than that. It is more wasi' than that. That uh, His knowledge and his, his knowledge is vast and His power is overwhelming. So we have to, we have to realize that and beware of sinning. His knowledge knows no bounds, right? So he, can, he knows exactly what's happening and his power is overwhelming. So we should take, that, take heed from that and refu- uh, uh, refrain from sinning. His mercy is also infinite, so we should turn to him. That despite Allah Ta'ala's power, despite his knowledge, if we do sin, know that his mercy is also vast, so that we should take heed from that and be able to turn to Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. And he is tolerant in his commandments and forgiving. So we should not lose hope. We should never lose hope. Right? One of the, speaking about the oceans and whatnot, then one of my teachers, he said, he mentioned that, you know, th- that, individual who, um, that individual who says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that I won't be forgiven. Right? That a person who says, oh, I already know, I already know whether I'm going to be punished or not. That is foolishness. That's foolishness. Why is that foolishness? Because... To say that I already know whether I'm going to be punished or not, and usually somebody will say that who's not really leading a very pious life, right? They're not really leading a pious life. Typically, it comes from those individuals. Sometimes it comes from somebody who seems to be living a pious life, but there's usually some catch. There's usually something funny happening also, right? Like people who say, oh, I don't need to make my salah anymore. I don't need to pray anymore and stuff like that, right? That's another extreme. But an individual who says that I'm going to be punished anyway because I'm a, sin- I'm a sinful person, so why should I change my life? Why should I try to make my life better or more pious or more in line with, with Allah's commandments and whatnot? One of my teachers, he said that that individual is foolish because he is more foolish than the person who, if they haven't bathed themselves for a whole year, imagine how much stench would be on us, right? How filthy we'd be. You don't bathe for a whole year. Everything that you do, you don't bathe ever from it. And then you go and you stand before the ocean Right? Have you guys ever stood before the ocean before? Not Puget Sound, but the actual ocean. Right? You st- it's, it's crazy, right? We used to go to in South Africa, we used to go to the beachfront. And it's right on the Indian Ocean. Like, you don't see anything else. Right? Nothing else. You don't see an island popping up here, nothing. You just, it's like that's the end of the world almost, right? Nothing else that you see. He said the individual who goes and stands in front of that ocean and says that if I was to walk inside of you, if I was to jump into the ocean you couldn't cleanse me. Addressing the ocean that you couldn't cleanse me after a year of being filthy, of not bathing. How foolish would that person be? You just have to spend a few minutes, right? You probably don't even need soap or anything, right? You just jump in and you're going to be fresh and clean and you'll be a pleasant person to be around again. The person, as foolish as that person is, more foolish is the one who says that Allah Ta'ala, my, my wickedness is greater than Allah's mercy that this person is more foolish than the one who thinks the ocean cannot cleanse them. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we should never lose hope in Allah ta'ala because His mercy and His forgiveness is more vast than anything else. Now Imam Qushayri rahimullah, who is a great uh, jurist of the Shafi Madhab, he says that Allah ta'ala's spacious blessings are of two types. Number one, His spacious blessings are of two types. Number one, they are beneficial. So they are those blessings which are of benefit to us. 
right? That is that blessings where certain benefits are derived. So some favor comes upon us and we're able to take some benefit from it, right? So like a job, we get a job, we make money. We can derive benefit from having that job from making money, right? We can clothe ourselves, live a comfortable life, shelter, food, everything, right? He says the second, uh, the second type is a protective blessing. And this is whereby we are saved from certain afflictions. So which of the two is better? If you could choose between having a blessing that you take benefit from it, like direct benefit from it, like the example given, or a blessing where you're protected from some affliction, which would you choose? The? The protection, right? Because look at individuals who might have, they might make a lot of money, nice house, nice car, so much going for them as far as materialistic things are concerned, right? But they get sick. So that sickness is an affliction, right? The sickness is an affliction. Or even if they're healthy, but they don't have any money, right? So they lose their job. That loss of a job is also an affliction, right? Most people in that state, that's when they get stressed out. That's when they freak out. That's when they start breaking down, right? So I'm sure everybody in that situation would choose to rather have the type of blessing where we are protected from having some calamity or affliction upon us. That that is, so Imam Qushayri, he says that is superior. The protective blessings are superior. And he says that despite them being superior, this is the one that is underappreciated. Because when there's a blessing in our life, when we see the benefit that we can derive from it, then it's something more tangible. When it comes to things that are, we are protected from, we don't know what we're protected from, right? A few things we might be able to realize, but there's really, there's, I mean, there's no bounds to the things that we can be protected from. Like flipping through a book, even something as small as a paper cut. We flip through how many pages and nothing happens, no paper cut. Paper cuts sting, right? <laughs> you know, they, I mean, people freak out, like even stubbing your toe, something as minor as that, and then even to, to greater afflictions, you know? A lot of times we think that we're young and so sickness comes in older age. There's two people that I know who were 25 years old and afflicted with cancer, right? Another individual that was 30 years old, and this is like within the last few months that I know them, right? One guy was 25 years old, about married, six months into his marriage, he found out he had severe cancer, right? That's like life-altering, you know? And so we think that these sicknesses come later on, but they can come at any time. They can hit us any time. Allah protect us, but we don't realize what, what we're being protected from. So he says that uh, even, for, even for people of other faiths, there is Allah Ta'ala, Allah's mercy is vast. His protection is vast and it knows no bounds. Right? In this, in this world, well, they haven't believed in Allah and so He doesn't take them to account. Right? So that's, He's protecting them from being afflicted by different tribulations of this world. Right? Secondly, and what did we mention? That His helm, His tolerance is also vast. And even in the hereafter, those people that He might be punishing, right? those people who face consequences, the consequences could always be worse. They could always be worse. And so Allah protects them and He allows them, although there may be consequences, they may endure consequences, they, He could have made it worse and so He protects them from the situation being even worse. Right? So one example, like look at Abu Lahab. 
He was the uncle of the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu right? Peace be upon him. And so he, what happened? He's going to be punished and he's going to be punished severely. But every Monday, he is going to be, his punishment will be lessened for, for, some, for, for that evening. Why? Because when he learned that the Prophet Sallallahu was born, then he freed a slave. They didn't even know he was a prophet at that time. And this man like tried to kill the Prophet Sallallahu later in his life, right? Yet every Monday, just out of his happiness that the Prophet Muhammad was born, not even knowing he was a prophet, Allah will, he freed his slave and so Allah, Allah will uh, decrease his punishment slightly, right? Abu Talib also, right? An another uncle of the Prophet. Yeah, he protected the Prophet and everything, didn't believe in him. He'll also face consequences. But he will have the least amount of consequence of anybody, the least amount of, of punishment. There's different levels of Jahannam, right? There's different levels of the fire. And the lower you go down, the more severe and worse that it's going to be. So, and even in the lowest levels, it could always be worse. So even those people who have displeased Allah, He still, He could still make it worse for them, but He chooses not to make it worse for them. So is this, sorry, is this under like the assumption, like, are you saying that anyone that at that time did not believe in the Prophet, that they were, that everyone would go to hell, or? No, they had to be, uh, they, they chose not to believe in Him right after He came. I mean, I understand that, but like, you know, like the beginning when he first started preaching his message, like, I mean, like, I mean, the same thing when, like, when, like, new scientific studies come out, you know, we, we don't believe that first, and so, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is, like, I, I guess I, I understand why that he would be kind of conflicted because, like, oh, I don't know if that's true or not, you know, so, like, who? does that take into account? Who? God or something like that. Uh, <clears throat> Abu Talib, he, you know, he, he, um, his situation, so he, he was with the Prophet for several years after his prophethood came, right? And it was so, like the truth was so blaring in front of him, and he still refused. Therefore, that's why, uh, that's why the punishment is there, right? Now, um, because in his, the end of his life, the Prophet came to him and at, said, like, just say, La ilaha illallah, right? Believe. And, and the others that were around him, they said that, you know, but well, you're going to leave your, the religion of your forefathers at the end of your life. You know, they mocked him. And so he chose, he said, no, you know, um, that's what will the people say about me afterwards? That's what the pride thing. Huh? It was more of a pride thing. Like pride. Right, it was more of a pride thing, right? Um, now, yeah, you don't know the state of somebody's heart. Outwardly, that's what it seemed like, right? Um, but yeah, once the truth came in front of the individuals, right, then that's when they were accountable then, right? Uh, right, so going back to the topic... Imam Muzayi mentions that for every... Now we have... There's other things that are also expansive, right? There's also, there are other things that are also vast. But everything, no matter how immense it is, it has a limit. There is a limit to it, right? So think about the universe. The universe also, according to, according to science, it's always expanding, right? It's always increasing and growing. We don't find any reason to contradict that in, in Islam either. So yeah, maybe it's growing. And actually, it kind of makes sense because what... You guys know that those are hadith about, you know, if you build a masjid, then Allah will build a house for you in Jannah. If you do such and such act of charity, Allah will, you know, He'll increase your kingdom in the, in paradise, right? So every action you do, now Allah's building things for you, increasing your kingdom. The universe could be, it consists of paradise and the hellfire also. So the fact that our paradise is expanding kind of gives indication the universe is also expanding, right? 
Yeah. Where is the afterlife? It's just like another realm. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm that I don't know. I mean, there's, you know, when the Prophet went on his Isra al Miraj, then he ascended the heavens. So heaven is different from paradise. Heavens are like containers of knowledge, right? So he went through the different heavens and he met different prophets. And then he reached the, the seventh heaven and then he went beyond that. And then there's the lot tree and he went beyond that. And, you know, Jibreel uh, stopped following him at that. He said, I can't go any further. So the Prophet went beyond that. He reached the throne of Allah. He went beyond that. He reached the place where he could hear the pens scratching. Those pens that write down everything that happens. He heard those and he went beyond that. And he kept going until he, whatever it means, that, but he came into the uh, presence of Allah, whatever it means, right? And so... And then he conversed with Allah. So where is paradise? And, so, and he was shown paradise and hellfire on the journey also. But where it actually is in relation to everything, I, I don't know. <laughs> the heavens seem to be, uh, I don't know, could you say there it's, it's like a linear thing? Possibly. I mean, the world is round, right? So at least that's what science has said now. So we'll find out, I guess. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. But I heard they're actually trying to, they're discussing if the, if, if the sun actually rotates around the earth or not. Like they're bringing that, trying to study that theory again or whatnot. I don't know. There isn't anything explicit in the Quran. And Muslims have actually differed on this also. That what, what is going around what? Is the earth going around the sun? Is the sun going around the earth? Is it that everything else is moving? And, and there's nothing definitive mentioned in the Quran. So like whatever one you want to believe is fine. You know? And so if somebody actually asked me, I went to the church here on 15th, the Presbyterian church the other day. And somebody asked me that, um, how do you, you know, as Christians, we deal with a lot of, um, you know, doubts that people have because of scientific claims against Christianity, contradictions. So as Muslims, how do you guys deal with that in the Quran? He said, there's nothing that science has leveled as a claim against the Quran. So when you find something, then bring it up, <laughs> right? And that's, that's the beauty of the Quran, right? The, the word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, so... Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but regardless, the, the universe is always expanding. Right? Now, Imam Zali mentions, so if, if as vast as the universe is, it's always expanding, the one that doesn't have any limit is truly wasir, is truly vast. Why? Because the one that has no limit is not expanding. Because if it was expanding, that would mean that it had a limit. Right? As big or as wide, as vast as something might be, it can, if, if there's a limit to it, there's always a, an ability, there's always a chance for it to increase more. So the thing that doesn't have a limit also doesn't have a chance of increasing. But it doesn't have a chance of increasing because it has no limit. Understand that? Right? So that's why Allah is vast. He is wasit. Right? So like you have the universe. Right? Say the universe is this big. And it has a chance of increasing. Allah is wasit and he has no chance of increasing. Now Allah doesn't have a body, so in his kingdom and his attributes and all these things, there's no chance of it increasing because it's already limitless and knows no bounds. Right? So it's kind of, you, you would kind of think of it to be the other way around. Right? That the thing that has, the thing that has a chance of increasing is more vast than the thing that has no chance of increasing. But it's actually the other way around. Something that has no chance of increasing is more vast Right? When we're talking about Allah Ta'ala, right? Allah has no chance of his, his, Him being wasit cannot increase because it's already limitless. Therefore, He's truly the only one that we can say is wasit, whereas everything else 
has a limit, it has a boundary. And although the boundary can be increased, shows that it is not lasted because if it can be increased, that means it hasn't reached its limit, right? That's the, you know, the philosophical stuff Imam Zayi threw out there, you know? He wrote the incoherence of the philosophers and like just debunked them completely. <clears throat> um, right, then he mentions, he says that the share that we can take from this is that when we are, when we are feeling too much weight on our shoulders, when we feel overwhelmed, then we should call upon Allah Ta'ala by this name, Ya Wasir. We should call upon Allah by this name, uh, invoking Him, calling, beseeching Him rather, for help in this affair of ours. And he says that expansiveness for humanity consists in his knowledge and character. That if our knowledge is increased, then it is vast in proportion to what it was before. Right? Because it has increased. And in character, if character expands, then uh, character should expand to the point that it is not confined by fear of poverty or the anger which accompanies envy or to the point that it is conflicted by, uh, sorry, or by the, the dominance of greed. If our character reaches that level, so not out of, it, it expands beyond the fear of poverty, right? Because when you fear poverty, then what happens? You start becoming greedy, right? Uh, more so, and sometimes more so than, than needs to be, right? More than just securing what you need. Um, and if it, uh, and it should be, go beyond uh, the anger which accompanies envy, right? So when we get envious, then the next step is to get angry. Right? We're envious of a particular individual, then we get angry, and then we try and bring that individual down from their status. Right? And then, the dominance of greed, right? it's all kind of connected. And any other, any other reprehensible character traits we have, we have to move beyond that. Then we can say that we have taken a share from al-wasir. Then we can say that we have become vast. So Allah Ta'ala, His, His mercy knows no bounds. Right? There's a narration where Rasulullah he heard a Bedouin uh, praying supplicating to Allah. He said, Oh Allah, have mercy on me and on Muhammad and nobody else. <laughs> right? You got to love the Bedouins, you know, they teach us things. <laughs> so the Prophet heard him and he rebuked him. He said, you are trying to limit the one who knows no bounds. Right? So what this Bedouin probably thought that Allah Ta'ala, his mercy has, has limits. So if he has to disperse that mercy across all the rest of his creation, then there will be less mercy for me. So he said, only have mercy on the two of us. The Prophet said, it knows no bounds. Why are you trying to limit him? You know? And in a hadith, Rasulullah is mentioned, Abu Huraira right? Abu Huraira, no, no, so many hadith come from him. I realize like so many hadith that we share are mentioned by Abu Huraira right? because he dedicated his time. He only became Muslim uh, in the seventh year of Hijri, three years before the Prophet passed away. But he was one of the Ashabu Sufa. He was one of those who, who gave up everything. He just sat in the, in the masjid of the Prophet and waited for him to come and teach him. Right? And there was like a whole bunch of others that did the same. And so that's why he narrates the most number of hadith also. Um, but he narrates that قال, that indeed Rasulullah he said, Man da'a ila hudan, that whoever calls towards guidance, kana lahu min al then there is for him. The reward, مِثْلُ أُجُورِ مَنْ تَبَعَهُ لَا يَنْقُصُ ذَلِكَ مِنْ أُجُورِهِمْ شَيْئًا Whoever calls towards guidance, whoever calls towards goodness, then he will have the reward, the same reward of the one who follows that guidance. So the, if, I, if somebody shows you how to do something good, they show you something good, right? 
then you go and you do the thing that is good, that is excellent. You will get the reward for it. But the person who showed it to you will also get the reward for it. So someone teaches you how to pray. You pray, you get reward for praying. The one who taught you how to pray also gets reward for, for the prayer, even though he didn't perform your, your prayer, right? He will have that reward and it will not لا ذلك من أجورهم شيئا, and it will not increase from the reward at all. So person B learns how to pray from person A. Person B prays and he gets a hundred rewards, right? If we understand it like that, okay? Person A gets a hundred rewards. It's not divided. Now, okay, well, there was a hundred for that, so now it's going to be divided into 50-50, right? No, no. Each gets the full reward for it. That is the vastness, the expansiveness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah. You accidentally show someone the wrong thing? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like for example, if you like, think that you know, like, I guess how to pray right or something, you don't, and you show that to somebody else. Um, that, that could be different because that was a mistake. Um, that's why we should learn uh, properly. But then to rectify that, we can go back to the individual and try to teach them, like, oh, you know, I actually made a mistake about this or, you know, whatnot. But. Um, if we actually do something bad, right? So like now with social media and stuff, people post their, the wrong things that they're doing, right? And they spread that. That actually, by showing them like, oh, I went and I did such and such bad thing, right? Like something like, something that's really bad, like not by accident, like, you know, you went and you, you went to a bar or something, right? Mm -hmm. Another individual sees that and says, oh, you know, oh, they went and they're a good person or whatever. And this other individual goes to the, goes to the bar also. That you've enabled them to do it, you've inspired them to do it, so then you have a share in that bad also. If we see our wrong, then we should go to them and say like, hey, look, you know, I shouldn't have gone and this and that. And hope and make dua to Allah that, oh Allah, like if they continue doing this bad, I've tried to show them the right way and rectify it, so try not to take, so don't take me into account for it. Uh, and we can hope for that and make dua and, you know, we have to exert our effort in trying to rectify what wrongs there are. And then, you know, Allah Ta'ala's mercy is boundless, so inshallah, then we wouldn't have a share in that, you know. Um, and then Imam Uzali, lastly, he says that if you cannot please people with your wealth, then please them with your good conduct. So if you're not able to materially or tangibly give somebody something of benefit, then benefit them with your good conduct, with your good character. Right? That's what so much of the deen is comprised of. And then the next, the next name is Al-Hakim, the All-Wise. Al-Hakim is also linked, so wisdom is linked to knowledge, right? Wisdom is linked to knowledge. Because wisdom only comes after knowledge and experience, right? Wisdom can only come after having knowledge and having experience of how a thing goes, right? That's why it's important in Islam, like it's stressed that we should look towards our elders, those who have gone down the path so that we don't make the same mistakes that they do, right? Because they've experienced how people work, how people think, what happens in society, so on and so forth. So seek counsel from them and whatnot, right? Um, Imam Tahir, who was actually here last week, right, for the conference, he mentioned, he mentioned to us that, you know, most masajids, right, there's a problem. The board of trustees, they don't want to give up the, their position, right? And so there's always a fight. And the younger generation fights with the older generation. The younger generation splits off. They make their own masjid. And then that younger generation becomes a, a new board of a new masjid. And then they do the same thing. They don't give up power, right? It's like a, just a vicious cycle, you know? Um, and uh, he said that his masjid, they took a chance. 
the board who established the masjid, they took a chance and they actually willingly gave up their position, right? And they gave it to the younger generation. And he said, in doing so, what happened is they were still around for when we messed up and made mistakes. And when we made mistakes, they rebuked us and we were able to take their counsel on how to rectify it because they'd already made those mistakes before. But what typically happens, if the board doesn't give up their position or if when we're in that situation, if we don't give up our position, we're going to die and then the next generation is forced to, take the, forced to take the responsibility. But now they have no guidance of the elders, right? So all this is what the, the guidance comes because wisdom is there. Why? Because experience and observation and knowledge was there prior to that. Now with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He doesn't need experience because what did we say? Wisdom is linked to knowledge. And His knowledge is boundless. His knowledge he came before existence and creation. Therefore, he didn't need to experience anything. He's independent of the need to experience in order to have wisdom. Understand? Right? So first you have knowledge, and then you need to have experience, and then you gain wisdom. But Allah, ha- he's independent from the need of experience. He had the wisdom. He was Al-Hakim already from before. Right? And then uh, Imam Zai mentions that wisdom, hikmah, is the most sublime mode of knowledge. Sublimity is what? It is excellence and grandeur and beauty to inspire great admiration or awe. That's what being sublime is. Right? To have excellence and grandeur and, and beauty to inspire greatness and to inspire awe. That's what sublimity is. So Allah Ta'ala, so wisdom is the most sublime mode of knowledge. It's different from knowledge. Right? It's different from knowledge. A lot of people might have knowledge, like in the deen, for example, right? In Islam, a lot of people might have knowledge, but they don't have wisdom. They don't have wisdom on how to guide individuals, how to rectify the community, how to bring people close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? There is a difference. That's why our teachers would always tell us that you know, now you're graduating and you're going out, go and spend time with the older ulama, those that have been around for a while. Uh, observe them, uh, uh, make mashwara with them, seek counsel from them, see how they do things. Because especially young, right? Like you come out, I, I finished from my studies a year ago, right? It's like when you come out of you know, university students, you're always, you have a lot of zeal, right? So same, when you come out, you finish your studies, your Islamic studies, you have a lot of zeal. You want to change the world. And you, you think it's good enough that you just say, no, this is how it is. And people will just accept it. But that's not the reality, right? You think it's just good enough that you just say what's right and wrong and you make everything black and white. But that's not what, how people are guided, right? And Rasulullah uh, he was the perfect example of that. And the wisdom that Allah had in revealing the Qur'an also. What was the first, right? There's the Makki surahs and there's the Madani surahs. Those chapters revealed in Makkah, those chapters revealed in Medina. Aisha radiallahu anha, she says, she talks about the wisdom of, of the order of revelation. And she says that if you look at the Makki surahs, those revealed in Makkah, those were typically dealing with having patience, reward, virtue, perseverance, right? Good conduct, all of those things. There wasn't much, there wasn't a whole lot of law in the Makki surahs, in the Makki verses. The law came during the Madani surahs, when the Muslims had their own land to govern now. When 13 years after the first revelation, the hearts were already firm, right? She says that had the first revelations been about leaving fornication and leaving alcohol and so on and so forth, and gambling and whatnot, the people would have said, oh, this religion is not for me. I can't, I can't become Muslim. But when Allah Ta'ala first, he, he got their hearts attached 
And once their hearts were attached to Allah and His Messenger, then when the ruling came, no more alcohol, then what happened? The, the roads of Medina were flowing with alcohol. People just dumped it out. Some had drank it and they gagged themselves. As soon as they heard it, bam, they heard it and they gagged themselves. Whereas like, you know, 1930s, America tried to stop alcohol, right? It's a ban, prohibition on alcohol. What happened? Root beer started at that time, right? <laughs> uh, and now, look, what weed has been made legal. <laughs> you know, it's like we're digressing now. Why? Because the hearts are not attached to the law, right? So Aisha Radhana, she speaks about this, right? That this is generally has to be our approach. Now that doesn't mean that, oh, so somebody who newly becomes Muslim, we just tell them like, oh, you can continue drinking alcohol for a time, right? Because that's how it was revealed, right? No, that's not how we should approach things. But somebody who's newly Muslim or somebody who is newly trying to get religious despite being Muslim their whole life, we should be soft with them, right? So we can tell them like, you know, these things, we should try and refrain from these things, but be soft with them. Let them come slowly at their own pace, you know? Not, don't expect like a change overnight. Otherwise, what happens? Three years and there's a burnout, right? Three years of an iman high and then there's a burnout and then you just turn away, right? So we have to have softness, right? Whether it's with new Muslims or newly wanting to be religious Muslims, softness has to be there, right? And so that is wisdom. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom, right? Now, uh, a person who is wise, we can say that an individual is wise when... Uh, or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rather, He is wise because what He knows what He does, He knows why He does it, His assessment of everything, His management of affairs, His placing of everything in its appropriate place makes Him al-Hakim, makes Him the all-wise. We don't understand why Allah does what He does. We don't always know, right? We can try to come to some logical conclusion. We might be right, we might be wrong. But Allah knows what, why He does what He does. And when we are afflicted with something, that's usually when we're when, when this question comes in our mind, why did we get afflicted? First, we should try to refrain from saying, why is this happening to me? Because this is a type of being ungrateful to Allah, right? And if it does come out of our mouth, okay, then make tawbah to Allah, right? Say astaghfirullah, make tawbah to Allah, ask for guidance. But typically when we're afflicted with something, that's when we ask, we wonder, why, why is this happening to me? Well, we don't know the benefit that there, there lies in that. And Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran that there's those things that are good for you and you think they're bad. And there's those things that are bad for you uh, and you think they're good. Right? So we don't always know what situation is afflicting us or why a certain is, a situation is afflicting us. You know, we leave that into the wisdom of Allah. But what we can be sure of is whatever comes upon us, whether it be good or bad, there's two paths to take. One is towards Allah, one is further away from Allah. So every situation we should, we should sit and assess it and judge it. That what action could I take with this uh, choice that's in front of me? that would lead me towards Allah and which would lead me away from Allah. And then we should ask, ask for help from Allah to go towards that which will lead us closer to Allah, right? that, that which will please Allah Ta'ala. So Imam Ghazali mentions that whoever knows everything to assume that a person could know everything. Whoever knows all things but does not know Allah cannot be wise because he doesn't know the most sublime and the most high. <laughs> he can't be wise because he doesn't know Allah. And Vice versa, that a person who knows Allah is wise even if he is, even if he's deficient in other conventional knowledge, right? So it's interesting, like I've met individuals, people have said, oh, this person is so knowledgeable, he's so knowledgeable, you know? Like individuals who are not Muslim and they're, they're being, an indiv somebody's talking about their knowledge of Islam. They'd be like, oh, he's so knowledgeable. 
the person's knowledge is usually historically, historic knowledge, right? What happened in the history of Islam. But they don't know Allah because they turned away from Allah. So you can't really say that person is truly wise. Yeah, they might have wisdom in certain other aspects of life, in conventional knowledge. But in, the, in, in, actual, in reality, you can't really say this person has that wisdom that has benefited them. Right? And this is where we have to be careful with science because science is very much like, uh, it's a fitna in today's time, right? We don't want to believe something unless we can see it, right? So we have to make sure that that doesn't, allow, that doesn't take us away from Allah. A little bit of knowledge of science could take a person away, but a, a, an in-depth knowledge of science shouldn't take a person away from Allah, right? Shouldn't take, I mean, like, who you, like, you find, like, speaking about the theory of evolution, you'll find the people who... Uh, just sort of know the, the general arguments will be most stern on it. But the people who actually teach anthropology and all that stuff, they will tell you, like, this is just a theory, you know? Like, in this, you know, kind of there's indications for this, but they will not tell you that this is definitive because it's not. It's just, it's a theory. You know what I mean? And then you'll see the grandeur of, like, the makeup of the body and the cosmos, and it should lead you to believe that, it should lead you to see the truth that, this could only have been made up through the, uh, the, the divine uh, divinity of Allah Ta'ala and His wisdom. Right? Now there's a verse of Qur'an that Allah Ta'ala says, يُؤْتِلْ حِكْمَةً مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَمَنْ يُؤْتِلْ فَقَدْ أُوْتِيَ خَيْرًا كَثِيرًا That He gives wisdom to whoever He wishes, and whoever is given wisdom, then indeed He has been given something great. وَمَا يَذَّكَّرُ إِلَّا أُولُو الْأَلْبَابِ that uh, nobody takes heed except for those who are intelligent, right? So, wisdom in an individual, so first of all, a person who is given wisdom, they have been given a great share. That's what Allah is saying in this verse. They have been given a great share. And that wisdom in an individual is that a person speaks of matters in a universal scope, right? Like, think about the difference. Has there, have there been times where we have said, this person is smart, Versus this person is wise. There's a difference between being smart and being wise, right? So, um, a person who we usually deem to be wise is somebody who speaks philosophically, who speaks, uh, uh, you know, their words have a lot of meaning. They speak in a more universal manner, right? What does that mean? Why is that? Why is that considered wisdom? Because that individual is not only looking at what's in front of him, directly in front of him, but they're, they have foresight, right? So they see... They see the path that will be of greatest benefit to everyone, to as many people involved. That's where wisdom, that's what wisdom is. So not only benefit in the dunya, but benefit in the akhirah as well. And there's those individuals that can see things from that angle, right? That what will be of greatest benefit to the most number of people within this world and in the, in the akhirah. And then they go and make a decision from that. So Imam Uzali, he says that the one, uh, or some of the other ulama, they mentioned that the one who is willing who is a willing slave to the desires of his flesh and still hopes for Allah's forgiveness, hopes in vain. Right? That if we are willing to, that why, if we give in to our lowly, our, our, our nafs, right? Our base desires, that is not wisdom. And it is not wisdom to think that, well, Allah is most merciful and I will do whatever I want and in disobeying Allah and He will forgive me. That is not wisdom. That's foolishness. But rather, truly wise is a person who is a master of his ego. So a person who is a master of his ego, a master of his nafs, that is the person who is truly wise. Because whatever is forbidden is a calamity. And whatever is allowed and encouraged in Islam, 
that is of what is benefit. So if so, wine is prohibited. Now people will come and say, but there's been, there's health benefits in wine. Okay, well Allah says that there's more good, there's more bad than good. He mentions that regarding wine. There's more bad than good. That indicates that yes, there is some health benefit to it. There is some benefit that could be taken from it, right? Not necessarily whatever health, whatever you want to do or t- take it as. But there is more harm than good. Therefore, it's a calamity. And whatever good there is in wine, Allah has made the same good in other things also. So like red wine has certain benefits. Okay, well, red grapes has certain benefits too. There was a guy, you know, that uh, one of the MSAs, Edmonds Community College, one of the, one of the uh, individuals, not even Muslim, he comes up and he asked, what's, uh, you know, why don't you guys drink alcohol? So I said, I was like, well, you know, although there is some benefit to it, but there's more harm, he goes, there's no good in it. I was like, well, there is, because Allah has said that there is some benefit, but it's still prohibited. He goes, no, it's a toxin. It's going to destroy your body, right? <laughs> That's the reality. Because Allah has made it prohibited because there's calamity in it. That's the reality. Whether we know what the calamity is or not is a separate discussion. It's a different discussion. But know that if it's forbidden, then there is calamity in it, right? There is detriment in it. So Allah Ta'ala has given us the strength to obey Him, and He's given us the weakness to disobey. So we have strength to obey and we also have weakness to disobey. Allah Ta'ala brings these things that He has prohibited in front of us to test us. For what? Why are we tested? We're not tested to show Allah whether we are faithful or not because He already knew whether we would be faithful. He already knew how we would act, how we would respond, how we would live our life. The test is so that we would know ourselves. That's why we are tested with things. So that we come to know ourselves. Allah could have on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, He could have said, if you had lived your life, you would have acted in such and such a way. And we could have said, oh Allah, no, that's not how we would have acted. What's going to happen? Our mouths will be sealed. Our feet and our hands will be given the ability to speak and they will testify against us. So what? Literally ourselves will be witnesses against ourselves, So that ourselves can know ourselves. <laughs> right? Allah Ta'ala already knows. The test is so that we get to know ourselves. Now there's a verse of Quran and we'll wrap up <coughs> shortly. Allah Ta'ala says, لَقَدْ مَنَّ اللَّهُ عَلَى الْمُؤْمِنِينَ إِذَا بَعَثَ فِيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِنْ أَنفُسِهِمْ That the favor of Allah on the believers is that He sent from amongst themselves a messenger يَتْلُوا عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِهِ He recites His verses, He recites the verses of Allah, the verse of the Quran uh, uh, to them and He makes their tazkiyah, purifies them, right? Tazkiyah of the heart, tazkiyah of the nafs. kitab, And he teaches them the book, hikmah and wisdom. That they used to, before that, they were in open air. So what's mentioned? The, benef- the favor upon us is that Allah sent Rasulullah from amongst ourselves, right? Then he recited the verses to humanity. After reciting the verses came tazkiyah, after tazkiyah, he taught them. So first, the nafs had to be purified. Then maximum benefit could be taken by learning the Qur'an. Wal-hikmah. What's hikmah? The ulama say here, يُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ وَالْحِكْمَةِ He taught them the book, is the Qur'an. And hikmah is the sunnah of Rasulullah Hikmah means wisdom. But the scholars of tafsir have said that hikmah, although it's wisdom in translation, what it means is the sunnah of Rasulullah So what does that tell us? Following the sunnah is wisdom. Right? Following the sunnah is wisdom. Now, he mentions that Rasulullah is truly the wise one. And he mentions some of his statements. So we don't have time 
Uh, if you guys want to stick around afterwards, I guess we can go through it. But I'll just mention them. You guys can chew on it. That Rasulullah he said things of wisdom, right? So things like the beginning of wisdom is fear of Allah, taqwa. Or his saying, the shrewd man is one who judges his soul and works for whatever comes after death, while the incompetent subordinates his soul to its passions and hopes in God. Or his saying, that that which is little yet sufficient is better than a great deal which distracts. Or his saying, for one who becomes healthy in his body, safe in his surroundings with his daily food, it is as though the world in its totality belongs to him. Or his saying, be God-fearing and you will be the most worshipful of people. Be content and you will be the most grateful people. Or his saying, speech is responsible for misfortune. Or his saying, part of the attractiveness of, man, of, of a person's Islam is to leave alone that which does not concern him. Or his saying, the happy man is one who is instructed by another. Or his saying, silence is wisdom, but few accomplish it. Or his saying, contentment is a wealth that will not be consumed. Or his saying, perseverance is half of faith, certainty is the whole of faith. These expressions and their like are termed wisdom, and whoever is adept at them is called wise. These are some of the sayings of Rasulullah So what is wisdom? Wisdom is to take a step back in order to take two steps forward. In our approach to life, in our approach to deen, in our approach to rectifying people, rectifying ourselves, some, we try to go full force. But that's not always beneficial. Most of the time, we have to take one step back in order to take two steps forward, especially when it comes to rectifying other people, guiding other individuals, right? There was one, uh, a great scholar of, uh, of uh, Pakistan and India, Mulana Ashraf Ali Tanwi, rahimahullah. He's known as uh, Hakim al-Ummah, right? He sent one of his students to a village. He said, go rectify that village. His student arrives in this village and he sees that he writes a letter back to the teacher saying that, you know, Mashwali um, Tanvi, by the way, was uh, he wrote, he authored the most number of books in the history of Islam, more than any other scholar. 17 or 1800 books he wrote. Right? I think Ibn Taymiyyah wrote like 1100 or something. Anyway, his student writes him a letter back saying, Where have you sent me to? These people here are engaged in shirk and that's it. <laughs> right? And he spoke to them. He said, You guys are doing such and such an action. You know, this is not. This actually takes you out of the fold of Islam. They, they said, no, no, we're Muslim. We do this action. Right? They thought that the action they're doing is what uh, identifies themselves as having Iman. Whereas the reality was, no, this is an action of like, this is, it, was near, it, was, it was practically grave worshipping is what it was, right? And uh, so he writes this letter to his sheikh and his sheikh says, you know, he says, don't you dare stop them from what it is they're doing. Think about it. They're doing shirk. And he said, don't stop them from it. In his letter, he wrote, that this is the only thing they, they think they know of deen. There's no other action they are performing that is within Islam, that is in the uh, scope of Islam. If you stop them from this one action, you will cut them off from, from deen, from Islam completely. He said, so stay with them, live with them, gain their trust, teach them other things about the deen. Once they have your trust and you have rectified other aspects of their life, then when you tell them this is wrong, they will leave it at a moment's notice. Then the day came that he wrote back to his sheikh and he said that all praises to Allah, their islah, their rectification is complete. Rectification of the whole community is complete. And so a, a wise individual is a person who what, understands others, understands their demeanor, understands their purpose. And then his behavior towards them is in accordance with that knowledge. So he learns about them, he knows them, and then his behavior towards them. Sometimes you have to be stern with someone. Sometimes you have to be soft with someone. 
and you have to know the individual to know what, how you have to treat them, right? What will be, what, what, what is the wisdom, how is the wise way, the wise uh, method that you can act with an individual to get the best out of them, right? Sometimes it's coming down on a person and saying, what are you doing? You know, get your act together. And sometimes it's being soft with an individual, right? Like, you know, we can see with our parents oftentimes, 18, 19, 20, we start butting heads with our parents. Our, our parents try to force us into something that's good for us, but if they would have just said, you know, like if they had gone soft with us, we would have been more likely to have done what they wanted, right? Oftentimes that's the case. And then we'll end up, you know, making the same, doing, being the same as our parents. Allah grant us wisdom. Um, oftentimes if we dislike a thing about our parents, we end up doing the same things that we, we be, end up becoming the same thing that we dislike about them. We, we have those same traits. So we should, we should be easy on, and soft with our parents too, you know. Uh, so when this individual has this knowledge and he understands their behavior and his behavior towards them is able to rectify them, then he, when he sees de deviation, he's able to correct it. Now, <clears throat> two things I want to end off with. One is my father used to tell us, and you know, maybe he, he heard this from his father, his father maybe heard it from somewhere else, whatever it might be. He used to tell us that a smart man is the one who learns from his own mistakes, but a wise man is the one who learns from others' mistakes. So you make a mistake, Intelligence is to not make that mistake again, right? And Allah Ta'ala says in a, uh, Rasulullah says in a hadith that what uh, the believer is such that he doesn't get bitten from the same hole twice, right? If there's a snake, if there's a hole, you stick your hand in, a snake bites you. Intelligence is that, you know, a believer should be intelligent enough that you're not going to stick your hand back in the same hole, right? But the wise person, my father used to say that a wise person is the one who sees someone else's mistakes and learns from it. That's the difference. And... The ulama mentioned a story. So you guys have heard of Luqman the Wise. Luqman the Wise. He's mentioned in the Quran. Right? There's Surah Luqman. The, ver the chapter of Luqman. He wasn't a prophet. Uh, he was known as a saint. And he's called Luqman the Wise. Because he had a lot of wisdom. So in this, ver in this chapter of the Quran, he, he, gives his, he gives advice to his son before he passes away. So the ulama really, they look at this and they scrutinize it to see, okay, this is... You know, this is who Allah deemed as Luqman the wise, and this is what he has chosen to include in the Qur'an. So what is his wisdom? Imam Malik, rahimullah, he quotes Luqman the wise in his Muwatta. Imam Malik, had his famous book of hadith was Muwatta. So he quotes him and he says that, Luqman the wise said to his son, O son, seek to seat yourself near the scholars, and do so kneeling on your knees. For Allah gives life to the hearts through the light of wisdom just as he brings life to a dead land through a good rainstorm. So to gain wisdom, the wisdom of how to live our life in a holistic way in this, for, that will benefit us in this world and in the next is to sit with the scholars in a, in a, you could, kneeling on your knees. I mean, you can, you can go on about this. What does that mean, kneeling on your knees? Does it mean literal? Is it figurative, metaphorical? Is it, you know, to be humble? Is it to treat us, to teach us Tarbiyah, uh, uh, right? Proper upbringing of, of sitting on the floor. Like, there's a lot of discussion that you can go into this, right? Whatever it means. But be humble. Sit with the scholars and be humble, we can take from that at least. That Allah Ta'ala gives life to the hearts through the light of wisdom, just as He brings life to the dead land through a good rainstorm. So, Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala is all wise and He is Al Hakim. Any questions? Yeah.
Uh, you know, I mean, if it's something, first of all, if it's something that's distressing us, then we should try to leave it, right? Try to separate ourselves from it. Because what's the point of, like, do you have an example? Stressful. Yeah. Uh, so you have to see what the benefit. How is there more benefit than than harm, right? That you're trying to. You're part of this organization to bring benefit to others to accomplish the task. Is the task being accomplished? Is there um, a possibility, like realistic possibility, that that task will be accomplished? If not, and it's just taking you away from things, other good things that you could be doing, then, I mean, like, the example that comes to my mind is, like, if people come to me and they get frustrated working with their masajid, right, and organizations of, of deen and stuff like that, that it ends up, you know, the board and whatnot, they just end up running things a certain way and they're doing things that aren't the most benefit to the community. So these individuals will be frustrated and they'll say, you know, what should I do? I mean, I've tried for so many years... <clears throat> Um, and nothing, no, no change is coming, right? Like, the people that I'm working with are blocking the way towards goodness. Then we should leave that, right? But we have to first have patience and know that change is not going to come in a night. It's not going to come in a year, right? It's going to take some time. Um, but if it's distracting us from Allah or if we could, if our efforts are better spent in another avenue to support the deen, to support a different organization or something like that, then we can go towards that, Right? So it's not necessarily leaving um, the whole effort of servitude to, to Allah, service of, the, of, the, of Islam, but maybe just shifting focus and how we, you know, where we put our efforts. Um, what if it's benefiting the organization, but it's not benefiting you? Or it's like, it's kind of If it's not, so if your efforts are benefiting the organization, but not benefiting you? Uh, so we should, at le- we should at least try to take a step back, right? Instead of completely removing ourselves, take a step back um, and then try and set ourselves right with Allah and increase ourselves in dhikr. Because then if by increasing in dhikr, it brings light to the heart and it's a lot easier to handle stress. Shaykh a Yusuf, he said that a person who is stressed is not making enough dhikr. Right, and so like he, he mentioned also like you know somebody's told me that he said that, um, or other scholars have even mentioned right that I don't know if Shaykh used to mention this, but other scholars have mentioned that um, you know a person like uh, a Muslim should not be depressed because they have dhikr and Quran in their life, so they should be able to that is a relief from it. That doesn't mean depression doesn't exist; it exists, right? And if somebody gets depressed and there's a clinical and medical way to try to remove ourselves from that, it's fine to take those avenues, right? But Quran, Quran, recitation of Qur'an and the dhikr of Allah and those types of things need to be increased in our life because that will, those are direct, remove, uh, uh, those are direct like, uh, antidotes to, to depression and this type of, and to stress, right? So depression exists, stress exists, but if we have enough dhikr in our life, then it will be a lot easier to handle that. Right? That's why like we did al-wasi' in the beginning, in the first part of the, today. 
Uh, and so the ulama mentioned that a person who is feeling stressed and feels too uh, overburdened, right, then they should beseech Allah by this name, Al-Wasir, Ya Wasir, you know, call upon Allah Ta'ala with this, right? Because you'll see some people, like, they just don't get stressed out. You know, they just don't get stressed out. We, I've been teaching a history class, and in the, discussing the reign of Muawiyah, it said that, you know, like Abdullah bin Abbas and whatnot, they would say about him that we've never seen a person with more patience than him. That one letter came and said that, you know, you're being attacked from this side. Another letter came, you're being attacked from this side. Another letter came saying that these people have broken out of the prisons. Another, and he just came and he looked at it and he just passed it on. And he passed it on and he just sat there. And they're like, what's going on? You're not stressed out. He's like, yeah, these people just want money. These people always try to start something. They'll lose, you know, they'll, you know, um, sort of lose their zeal. These people will do this thing. Okay, this group, we have to, we have to do something. Like, we have to uh, prepare for this other group. You know, like... They were individuals that they wouldn't, the, the stress that they were facing wouldn't, they, it wouldn't stop them from, from completing the task at hand. You know what I mean? I mean, like, it's crazy how much people can handle. Like, you look at, like, Sayyidina Ali Radilano, his khilafah was, like, so torn, right? There was, I mean, it was crazy, right? It only lasted four years before he was killed. If you see how much was on his shoulders, we would have collapsed, right? But he kept going. Because his he was right, his affairs with Allah were right, <laughs> you know. So we you know we can try to take a step back, try to take a break, increase dhikr and Quran in our life, uh, be regular and constant in it. This is why in the beginning, the first ten years before Isra al Miraj, before Isra al Miraj is when the five prayers were were made obligatory, right? Before that, the Hajjud was obligatory on all the Muslims. They had to get up in the night and they had to pray, right? And the ulama write that. A, a, no wali has reached their wilaya, has attained their sainthood with Allah, except that they were also performing tahajjud. They had tahajjud in their life, right? That the spiritual benefit that comes out of perform, the performance of tahajjud is like infinite. You, you can't, can, cannot imagine how great it is, right? So what does this tell us? This teaches us that in order to have perseverance and to have patience and to be able to deal with stress, we have to have worship in our life extra worship and those things that are of greater spiritual benefit to us right that's why the hajjud was, was required because the Muslims were undergoing such great uh, uh, persecution in the early state in their first 13 years right so we can take a step back and then if it's really not working out then we can try to shift focus I mean it happens right sometimes like to be blunt like sometimes organizations are just a dead end you know and I, I mean I've, I, I whether it's the right advice or not certain people I've told them like you know it's a dead end you should just you can, your efforts are better, would be better in other places, you know. But we should, we should try and fill that void, whatever we're doing, fill that void with something else that's also beneficial. You know what I mean? Does that answer your question? Yeah, sure. You, anybody you can leave if they need to leave. Okay, so you talked about, you know, giving into desire. There are some people that they have desire and they keep giving into it, you know, on net. Yeah. Sometimes there are certain like desires that we fed for so long, you know, and it becomes like sort of an addiction. Well, definitely becomes an addiction. Yeah. And when when you try and change it, for example, like for example, people are addicted to alcohol. Yeah. And they've done it for so long, many years, and they try and quit it for the sake of Allah. And then you know what? But they keep relapsing, and they say, "Yo, Allah, Allah is the most forgiving. He will forgive me every time." You know? Is that taking advantage of? Him? And if so, 
answer like what you can do if if you're trying to combat this type of diet and you're trying to be yeah, so um, if you're trying to rectify yourself, but you keep slipping, that's not taking advantage of Allah's mercy. That's just, it was a habit, and habits are extremely hard to break, right? Like Allah Ta'ala realized, He knows that, right? Because He made us, <laughs> right? So as long as the effort is there, and that's why it's mentioned regarding Allah Ta'ala being ghafoor, right? Being the most forgiving, is that... Um, if you, if you sin, ask for forgiveness and He will forgive it. And if you commit the same one again, ask again and He will forgive it. And if you commit the same one again, a thousand times keep asking and He will keep forgiving. Right? Um, the difference is, like you said, taking advantage of and just saying like it's not a big deal. Right? Like completely. And sometimes you, it's such a habit and you become so, like it takes over your mind. And in that moment, you're just like, I need to do this thing, whatever, I, I don't care. Right? That's a moment that's a slip, right? Like it's almost like your, your, your judgment is impaired and obscured. And then after you've done it, you realize like, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. And sometimes you'll even realize like, I, knew, I know if I do this thing, I'm going to regret it. But whatever, I just need to do it. Like that's, what, that's the reality. That's what happens, right? That's, um, that's not taking advantage. That's just, it overcame you. We slipped. Then, you know, uh, repent. What's taking advantage is to not have any concern at all. You know, and to not try to make any effort whatsoever. You know, um, and and what should we do is we should ask and beg Allah Taala to remove us from it. That Oh Allah, you have the power to remove me from it. So remove me from it. And if if we fall into it, don't think that Oh Allah, you are the one that you had the power and you didn't remove me from it. That means you wanted me to do it. No, no, that's foolishness, right? Maybe there's something else in our life that's a reason that that we're not getting that bounty from Allah, right? Maybe Allah Taala just we slip unintentionally and Allah Ta'ala loves us asking for forgiveness right that's the reality uh, so we beg Allah Ta'ala to remove us from it and remove it from us also and to give us strength against it give us taqwa and then try and seek a better environment right stay away from the environment that would take us towards those wrong things and you know that's why like you know like the tablighi jamaat right you guys have heard of the tablighi jamaat Right? So they're just basically like They go out, they give da'wah right? They kind of go door to door, call people to the masjid They'll go out for like 40 days Out of their locality Giving people da'wah programs The reason for that is to remove an individual From the environment that's causing them to slip And put them in a better environment Because it takes at least 40 days To change a habit According to I mean there seems to be indication with that number uh, from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, although I, I don't think there's like definitive text on it, you know. But studies, like scientific studies, indicate the same thing. They, they conclude on generally the same thing, that it takes about 40 days to, right, to start. I think one time, our, I think our, our D.A.R.E. class in like sixth grade was, I think they said 23 days or something like that, right? But, right, it takes time. So we have to remove ourselves from an environment for, for a, a time, as long as it takes. And then... Once the habit seems to be broken, it doesn't mean we go back into that environment, right? But we should have the strength that if we're faced with that environment against our choice, we can resist it enough till we get back to a better environment, right? And that's why, like, people who have alcoholic addictions, they go to their, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and whatnot. Once they remove themselves and don't really have the desire to drink anymore, they still don't drink, right? Like, they break their, their al being alcoholics, but they still will not even take a sip, even though it's been 10, 15 years, because that pleasure that was gained from it, that caused that addiction, 
you remember it, right? And there's a chance of them slipping back into it, even though it's been years. And you'll find that. Ten years will go by, they'll take a, they'll take a slip, they'll take a sip of it, and they'll kind of go back into, into it, right? So that's just a reality of how we are. So we should try to remove ourselves from an environment, then try not to go back to it. But become strong enough that if we're faced with it, we can resist it and then go and remove ourselves. Right? That's why even like a, having a daily routine or at least a weekly routine, if a daily is hard, of just removing ourselves from everything. Right? Like literally turn your phone off, right? put it on airplane mode, put it down, just sit and, and make the dhikr of Allah for like 10 minutes. Right? Don't be in tune with anything else. Don't be on the laptop, don't be on the TV, no, no phone, nothing. Just sit in your room or wherever, away from distraction, 10 minutes a week, try to do that. Right? Try to, with your heart, try to meditate and say the name of Allah. That will be so profound. And then if we can do that on a daily basis, like that, that actually starts giving us strength of heart and, and everything. You know? But, um, yeah. So sunnah in acts of worship and the just general sunnah of Rasulullah So there's different levels of sunnah, right? There's those that are more emphasized. Sunnah and a general understanding of it is something that was a habitual practice of Rasulullah So for example, he, there was an occasion where he urinated standing, right? Uh, some say it was because he had a pain in his knee and he wasn't able to sit. Some say it was because he was in a dump yard. And so sitting would have been worse, like his clothes would have gotten dirty and whatnot, right? So he stood and he urinated. So although he did it, it's not considered to be sunnah to stand and urinate, right? Because it wasn't his habitual practice. So it's generally, it's a habitual practice of his. Then there are those, like in the Hanafi Madhab, will say, sunnah ghair mu'akkada. Those that are not emphasized, not the non-emphasized sunnahs. Meaning the Prophet did them once in a while, but like he wasn't known to have had a habit for it, right? So for example, like certain, like uh, to pray for Raqqa before Isha. That's a non-emphasized sunnah of the Prophet Like he did it, but it wasn't known to be a particular habit of his uh, or of the companions and whatnot. And so it's not, it's not, it's sunnah, but it's, a less, it's an unemphasized sunnah, right? Typically in acts of ibadah, when we talk about it, usually they're talking about those that are um, it, like just thinking about how we use them usually, we're talking about those that are habitual practices of his. So like when we, like the sunnah prayers, so those, that we, those are not compulsory. And then when we say those sunnah, so those are the sunnah that the Prophet had like performed as a habit. So. Yeah, so sunnah, sunnah doesn't, it's not in the same category as fard, as requirement, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, However, many of the ulama have said that if you leave, if you, ha if you have a habit of leaving out the habitual sunnahs, right, then you're sinful. So leaving it out once in a while is not a problem, right? But uh, having determination and a habit of leaving it out intentionally, that's a problem. Why? Because the sunnah of Rasulullah is guidance for us. So we are making a decision to not follow his, his method. And that's where the sin is, right? Um, so sunnah generally, if you leave it out, 
like the emphasize sunnahs, if you leave it out once in a while, it's, it's okay. It's, it's not sinful or anything. And if you have a habit of leaving it out, then it would be sinful. The non-emphasized sunnahs, even if you never perform them, it's not sinful. Right? So it, it kind of depends on what you're talking about. It's, you know, there are sunnahs of worship and whatnot, and there's sunnahs of like greeting people and sunnah methods of eating and stuff like that. Yeah, there's certain sunnahs in wudu and stuff like that. And those things, like, if we do them, right, so certain, like, uh, to, to sit in the sunnah method to when we're eating. If we do it, then, then you get reward for it. If you don't do it, um, it's not blameworthy. It's not sinful. So even though, like, so how did the Prophet sit and, and eat, right? There's a specific method, right? One is that he used to squat and lean on his toes, and keep his knees in front of him, right? One is that he used to sit with one foot down and one foot, like one knee up, right? Um, now, he didn't have a table, right? So if we use a table and we never sit on the floor and eat, that doesn't mean, even though that was a habit of his, but that was something, there's, there's two aspects, right? There's two aspects of sunnah, right, when in this discussion. Sunnatul huda and sunnatul zawaid. So sunnatul huda means sunnah that is for guidance, and sunnatul zawaid is like extra things that are like, not necessarily, like it was a custom of Rasulullah to do it, but it wasn't done particularly for reward, right? Or particularly for worship, rather. So these rulings came into, these categories the ulama put into place so that we would know the ruling of an individual if they leave something out. So sunnat al-zawaid, things like the clothing of Rasulullah that falls into sunnat al-zawaid, right? So like to wear the turban. You get reward for it. You're emulating the Prophet It was the garb of the angels. It was the garb of the prophets and messengers before him also. But it's counted as sunnah zawaid. So if you don't do it, it's not, you're not blameworthy for it. You're not sinful, right? Uh, whereas sunnah al-huda, like the, for example, the way he might have, the fact that he sat down when he urinated, that would be like for guidance and whatnot, right? Whether it was squatting or sitting on the toilet or whatever, but he sat, right? Those things would fall into like Sunnah al-Huda. What about like performing functions and stuff? Like if you want to cure it and then, but if you can't do it, you know, on a, let's say, daily basis, like kind of like leave it once well, does that make it sinful? <laughs> no, leaving out, alhamdulillah, leaving out the hijjah is not sinful, <laughs> otherwise we'd all, most of us would be in bad shape, you know? But, um, <laughs> No, it, there's a lot of benefit to it, great amount of benefit for it. But if we don't do it, it's not sinful. It's not sinful. Yeah. yeah. So there's twelve rakats that are sunnah mu'akkada according to the Hanafi method throughout the day. Um, the Hanafis have twelve. Other mothers have other. Like some of them will say two a two rakat instead of a four. Or something like that. They're, they're, yeah, what they determined, because they looked at the whole picture, right? What did Rasulullah say and do and approve of, and what did his companions do, and then what did his companions pass on as being sunnahs and whatnot? So they had different interpretations. Is it two here? Is it four here? Right? So, it, so like the sunnahs, the 12 sunnahs of the day, the muakkada, are the two before Fajr, the four before Dhuhr, uh, the two after Dhuhr. The two after Maghrib and the four, the two after Isha. That makes twelve. So those are the emphasized sunnahs regarding the salah. Is that just like the emphasized one? No. 
It's emphasized in the sense that we should do it because there's a lot of benefit, but it's not like the emphasize that it's sinful to leave it out. Like there's a lot of there's a lot of benefit. That's probably of the of of the voluntary acts, the nawafil acts. That's probably the most beneficial to us. Right? But it would it would count as a nafil. So there's different levels of all of these things. Right? See, knowledge is vast, so we have to study. <laughs> You just sit and learn. Yom Tahir mentioned that. Where you guys were at the UW conference. Yom Tahir mentioned that last week, right? You have to find the, the, the scholars, um, and you have to learn from them. So he even mentioned Mehrab. We didn't even ask him to. He mentioned Mehrab Foundation. And we have, you know, every, every Saturday, our classes are coming to an end now. We have a few weeks left. But we're going to have them again in the fall. Um, and... Uh, where? It's, uh, we, we, we just teach classes, so like Saturday morning, or we might change it to Sunday morning, but it's three hours, well, you prefer Saturday? We, we, for three hours in the morning on one weekend, it's for the people who are, you know, working, studying, students, anybody who's just not able to go and do a more full-time program to come and learn your basics, the Fard Ain, those which are required. We're teaching history this term which is not a fardain, it's not a requirement to learn, but like, we thought there was benefit in it, so probably won't teach, we might teach Sida or something next year, I don't know, we probably won't teach this history, but uh, we teach fiqh, we teach aqidah, so like I teach Hanafi fiqh, Sheikh Qasim teaches Shafi fiqh, um, yeah, so different classes, it's really important, you know, because it's our, this is our worship, we have to make sure our worship is valid, right? Huh? Oh yeah, it's a, it's a, it's intense. There's a lot of information we go through, but it's um, it's you know it's we go through the what's how, basically worship, right? So how to make your wudu properly, how to make salah properly, and that's all we had. The whole first term was on wudu, and the whole second term, ten weeks each, was on salah. And I'm 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 leaving stuff out from salah. Like I'm not gonna be able to finish all of it, you know, from the section. I mean, it's it, it's enough that you know how to perform it. All that is there. There's Kitab salah is like a big section in the fiqh books. And then inshallah, we won't get a chance this term, but we'll do like the fiqh of fasting as a separate class. Maybe the fiqh of zakat. We might be able to combine it with, with fasting. Hajj we probably wouldn't do it because you're not even going to understand it unless you go for hajj. <laughs> um, yeah.